Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words from the book that we love. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here to worship, to gather as your people hear uh, the scripture read. Pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear the truth uh, that's contained in these words. Uh, Would you speak to us? Would you speak to each of our hearts? Would you help us through the preaching of this word uh, to leave here this morning more ready, more motivated, more equipped to serve you? to follow Jesus in the way that you call us. We pray and ask these things in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, Before I jump into the sermon this morning, I do want to give one uh, quick disclaimer. I did not write this sermon. This is a sermon by Matt Harmon uh, that he wrote as the lead pastor of Liberty Mainline. I did spend some time editing it this week, and that is by design. So Jim mentioned this last week, but I want to mention it again. We're in the middle of a three-week mini-series that all the churches in the Liberty Communion, our network of churches, are all preaching. And so three different ministers from three different churches wrote these three sermons. One of those sermons was written by Jim Anger, our very own right reverend and lead pastor, and he preached his own sermon last week. So this is the first one of this series. 
that, that we're preaching that is not from us. And then next week, Jim will be back in the pulpit and preaching a sermon that was written by Vito Baldini, uh, who is the director of Small Things in Philadelphia. So we're in this three-part sermon series. All the churches in Liberty Communion are doing this, leading up to, hopefully, or at least right around Liberty Communion Sunday that Jim just announced. So this is a sermon by Matt Harmon. It's a great sermon. It was a joy uh, to spend some time editing it, thinking about it, praying about it, making it uh, a little bit more applicable to our context, and he's on the main line. So tweaked a few things, but I'm excited to bring uh, this to you this morning. So anyway, with that out of the way, let's jump in. I want to start with a question here. Have you ever been in a situation where you wish people would just stop talking? Maybe, you, maybe at a party, overhearing people in a coffee shop, maybe on the playground, or maybe at work around a water cooler. As I ask that question, maybe you're thinking of one person in particular in your mind, or maybe for some of you, you're thinking of a particular group of people. Hopefully none of you are thinking about me, because I literally just started this sermon. So buckle in, still got a few minutes here. Hold that thought for just a moment. In our passage this morning, we see one person who is a Christian talks about Jesus with another person who is not yet a Christian, and by the end of their conversation, the person who was previously never heard of Jesus is baptized as one of his followers and is filled with joy. To quote the great theologian from the Princess Bride, Vinzini, inconceivable. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound impossible? The reality is that for many of us, that we neither experience nor expect positive, beneficial outcomes from conversations with people who don't share our beliefs. And that sentiment, I think, cuts in all different directions. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, we welcome you once again. Thank you so much for being here and worshiping with us. And I realize that you might now be thinking, if you're not a follower of Christ, hey, when I hear Christians talk, it doesn't produce any joy in me at all. And maybe that is one of those things that has always kept you outside the faith. Or maybe it's what's pushed you outside of a personal faith that you once held or outside of a faith community that maybe you were once part of. And even if you are a follower of Jesus, as you listen to the loudest voices that are broadcast most widely across our our multimedia and the public town squares, you may cringe as well. Perhaps as a Christian, you're deeply embarrassed by what the most publicized Christian talking heads, celebrities, influencers, etc. say. On any given day, you can probably see, if you want to, someone rage posting on social media. Or you can walk through an intersection of your town, or if you're in Center City, Philadelphia, where someone is, quote, preaching about Jesus in a way that many followers of Jesus would consider aggressive or unkind or just unrepresentative of who Jesus really was. And far too often, even talk of other Christians as Christians, it can steal our joy. And so all of this begs the question, in such a time And in such a place as ours, in a culture that is so polarized, in a culture that is so tribalized, in a culture that is so hostile, do we really need more talking? Do we really need more words, more speaking about Jesus and God and faith in the Bible? Or would followers of Jesus simply be better served to observe a vow of silence? 
and just quietly try to do the hope, try to do the right thing and hope that God will extend his kingdom, save his people through telepathy or osmosis. 1927, the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis articulated his now famous counter-speech doctrine in his concurring opinion regarding the case Whitney versus California. And this is widely regarded as one of the most important free exp expression principles in First Amendment jurisprudence. And this is what he wrote. If there be a time to expose through discussion the falsehood and fallacies, to avert the evil by the processes of education, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. And the translation of what he is saying there is that the best way for anyone to fight bad speech is with more speech. It's with better speech. This year, together with our sister churches in the Liberty Communion and around the Philadelphia region, we're reviewing our mission as a network in this mini-sermon series that I mentioned just a moment ago. Our mission to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for our local neighborhoods. To live, speak, and serve. And that means for us here, our congregation, Liberty Church Collinswood in South Jersey, part of our mission, a key part of our mission as a congregation is to speak, to speak as the very presence of Jesus for Collinswood and its surrounding boroughs. We are called to give better speech. And the best speech is the speech that tells of Jesus and brings joy. We just completed the season of Advent, the season of Christmas more specifically, which reminds us each year that we should be ready to say to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family, we should be ready to say what the angel, the angels announced to the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So from here, I want to talk in three parts. First, we're going to talk about the destination of the message, this message of joy. Second, we're going to talk about the contents of the message. And third, the recipients of the message. The destination, the contents, and the recipients. So first, the destination. Where is the message of joy sent? And the message is not always sent to places that we expect. In our passage this morning that we see that Philip, he receives a surprising instruction that only makes sense when we consider that there was a divine architect behind this encounter. God tells him in verse 26 to leave Samaria. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And see, this doesn't really make any sense. Why would Philip leave Samaria? It's a city in which crowds of people are believing in Jesus through Philip's preaching. Philip hasn't just planted a church there. He's actually evangelized an entire region, an entire people group. Nevertheless, God tells him, I'm sending you someplace else. Go. Let me set the geographical scene for a moment here. So Samaria is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, and Gaza is about another 63 miles south of Jerusalem. And so that means that God is asking Philip to take somewhere between a 30 and 93 mile road trip, 
which doesn't sound like a, a lot to us with our cars and things. But in these days, pre-cars and probably taking this on foot, this was a long journey. And it was a long journey for a meeting that was literally to take place on the side of a desert highway. Why would God send this proven and successful evangelist to the middle of nowhere? Because God knew exactly where this Ethiopian man would be. God knew exactly when he would be there, and he knew exactly at what time he would be reading this particular passage of Scripture so that Philip could start a conversation with him, so that Philip could then speak a message of joy, a message of Jesus. This is kind of like a divine calculus problem. There's at least one and maybe more math teachers in the room here this morning. It would go something like this. If Philip is traveling on foot at an average speed of X from starting point A, and the Ethiopian is in a chariot traveling at an average speed of Y from starting point B, at what point M of the, on the Jerusalem-Gaza road will the, the Ethiopian meet Philip? I realize that there's a few high school students in the room that just cringed pretty badly at that. Maybe some adults in here who don't love the math so much maybe gave you a little bit of PTSD. I'm sorry. There will be no more math in this sermon, I promise. But it's fascinating, this divine encounter. But remember, too, that Philip was just recently in Jerusalem, if you read the story prior to this, which would have been much closer and would have been a much more convenient meeting place. But in God's wisdom, this was the moment, the time and the place when the Ethiopian would be ready to hear about Jesus. And so what's the destination of the message? Where do we speak joy? Just like Philip, it's wherever God is already moving us, wherever God is sending us, wherever we are, when the Holy Spirit prompts us to do so. See, from God's perspective, there are no meaningless moments. Quite the contrary, every moment is meaningful. Every moment excuse me, every moment is a divine appointment because God is sovereignly orchestrating all things together for his purposes. Not in a creepy, manipulative puppet show sort of a way, but rather as a beautiful tapestry. Excuse me, I've got a little bit of a tickle here this morning. I was hoping it wouldn't creep up. <clears throat> and this matters from both the wide-angle lens picture of our current culture, but also the high-density details of our lives. From a wide-angle perspective, speaking about Jesus is really unpopular, <clears throat> and it always has been. I'm going to put a mint in my mouth. I think this will be better. I've got, I've got some freshly purchased Ricola here from the, uh, the grocery store. <clears throat> Excuse me. From a wide-angle perspective, speaking about Jesus is really unpopular, and it always has been. Throughout history, that's actually the norm, not the exception. In our present culture, that's deeply post-Christian and secular, many people argue that religious ideas, especially Christian ideas, are not only wrong or silly or outdated, but they're actually harmful and dangerous. If you're a follower of Jesus, you may at times feel culturally stranded, like you're in a wheat field with a crop duster flying at you. But if God is in charge of all of history, and we believe that he is, 
He's also in charge of all the obstacles and the challenges and the pressures that we feel. And God may just be using them so that we can have the right conversations about the right topics with the right people at just the right time. But God's not just overseeing the broad sweep of history, that wide angle. He's also in charge of every detail of our ordinary lives. So there are people in our circles of relationships, people in your life and my life, here in South Jersey, people in Collinswood, Haddon Township, Haddonfield, Haddon Heights, anything that starts with Haddon, Audubon, Oakland, Gloucester City, Pensacon, Merchantville, Cherry Hill, Orristown, Mapleshade, Marlton, Runnymede, Mount Ephraim, Barrington, Stratford, Lindenwald, Voorhees, Gibbsboro, Berlin, <coughs> Turnersville, <coughs> Pittman, Barry, West Deptford, and Mullica Hill. That's where the people in our church live. Hopefully I hit you somewhere in there. There are people, there are webs of relationships that you have with close friends and strangers. And right now, God might be divinely orchestrating an opportunity for you to ask someone you already know, somewhere where you will be in the future, would you like to talk about that? Would you like to talk about that? And let me just say this briefly. If God is the one in charge of giving you the opportunity to speak of him, and he provides this divine appointment, God thinks you are qualified. You might think, you might have little confidence in yourself, but God thinks you're qualified. He has prepared you just the way that you are for that moment. <coughs> in many ways, it's like attending someone else's party. They do all the heavy lifting, right? They host it, they cook the food, you just get to show up. Hopefully you have a good time, some good food, some good drink, but you just talk. You just get to talk to people that you meet there. Second, the contents of the message, the contents. Here's where a lot of us get nervous. The contents of the message. What do you actually say? Philip and the Ethiopian both arrive at point M and God speaks. Verse 29, go over and join this chariot. The Spirit's final prompt is for Philip to jog up alongside the chariot as it moves along. The scriptures don't tell us <clears throat> that Philip was an accomplished ultramarathoner. He probably was not. But he is able to run and hear what the Ethiopian is reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And this might sound strange to us, this idea of the Ethiopian riding along in this chariot and reading, but it's actually quite normal. In the ancient world, ancient people had much less opportunity to read, and so reading out loud was actually quite common. It's fascinating to me, too, here in this passage that Philip, before he says anything, he listens first. And it's then, and only then, once Philip hears what's being read, that he sees his opportunity. And after he listens, at that point, he needs no supernatural prompting. But he knows what he is to do, and he simply asks, do you understand what you are reading? Philip is simply doing what Jesus did at first. See, one of the things that's striking about Jesus' life is that he actually puts a lot of emphasis on speaking and on 
teaching. We think about Jesus with his miracles often, and there are plenty of those, and he did many of those. But in many passages of scripture, you'll see in the gospels that Jesus, when people ask for miracles, he tries to turn their attention back to the message that he actually has for them. Jesus was very interested and maybe mostly interested in wanting to talk to people. And he does so often, by the way, in very mundane and ordinary situations. It's not always in these big, extraordinary ways. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus' instruction, a teaching to his disciples that they would make more disciples, that they would make more followers of Jesus by teaching them and by baptizing them, which is exactly what Philip does here in this passage. And as I mentioned already, there are some extraordinary elements in this story. But what Philip does is actually very simple. He listens, and so he knows what's on the Ethiopian's mind, and he starts there. He starts where the man already is. I mean, the guy was reading the Bible, so that's kind of nice. It's pretty straightforward. But Philip knows that this man needs more than just reading the Bible. He needs a real person to help him understand. And that's true then, and that's true now. Think about it this way. If God just used the Bible, if he only used his written word, the scriptures as they're printed in our English Bibles, to convert people, we wouldn't need to be a church. We would instead be a publishing house. We would just print a lot of Bibles and hope that people got converted. But that's not how God works. For sure, God uses the book, he uses the Bible, he uses his word, but he also uses people, his people, and he uses conversations. And you don't need a lot of qualifications to do this. If you're a person and you can communicate, then you are qualified. You can point someone to Jesus when he gives you opportunity. And there's one more point of application here that I want to point out before we move on which I mentioned a little bit already with Jesus, that, but God uses everyday situations. Not always big, extraordinary events, big, extraordinary things. In this conversation, it happens in a chariot while it rumbles down a desert highway. And God can use similar experiences, similar circumstances in your life. Modern equivalent would be like a car ride with someone. Or maybe for others, it might be a walk with a friend or a lunch with a classmate or a coworker. Any of those things, any of these ordinary things that we do could be an opportunity to have a conversation about Jesus. So as you go through life, just talk about God. Talk about the joy that God gives you whenever you can. As the Apostle Peter exhorts his readers in the letter that we call First Peter, where he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. For the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Too often, we think that only people with ministry jobs and credentials are qualified to do what Philip does here in this passage. But there are actually, I would argue, and I think Jim would concur, there are actually aspects of ministry that are done equally well and maybe even better by Christians that don't have some sort of official position or some sort of title. Let me put it this way. When a pastor talks about Jesus, are you surprised? No. That's our job. We get paid to talk about Jesus. 
It's a crass way to put it, but it's true. It's kind of like the solar salesman who knocks on your door in the middle of dinner time. Always in the middle of dinner time. I don't understand that. Are you surprised when that salesman thinks that his company's solar panels are the best? No, of course not. That's what you expect. But when ordinary Christians talk about Jesus, and I say ordinary in quotations, obviously, someone who's not a pastor, when ordinary Christians talk about Jesus, many people may find that more convincing because you don't have any other motive. And yes, it's true that Philip, if you read Acts, if you know about Philip, he is a gifted and qualified leader. There is no denying that. In a church of thousands in Acts chapter 6, he is chosen of just seven to help the 12 apostles. But despite that, he is a great example to us because he doesn't just tell people about Jesus when it's his job. He tells people about Jesus whenever and wherever he can. He's sensitive to, responsive to the divine opportunities that God provides him. Now, the recipients of the message, finally. So who receives this message? Who receives this message of joy found in Jesus? Well, in this passage, we don't get the name of this individual, but we learn quite a bit about him. Look back at verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so first... He's an Ethiopian. At times, the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia included a good chunk of north, northeastern Africa. So if you were looking at a map of Africa today, it would have included all of modern Ethiopia, but also a variety of other countries, including Etra and Sudan and South Sudan. But in Palestine, the term Ethiopian was often used as a blanket term for black Africans, which this man likely was. So we learned that he's Ethiopian. We also learn, second, that he's influential. He serves the Candace of Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian Candace was not a name, but actually an office. It's the office of Queen Mother, who was the individual who oversaw the day-to-day -day affairs of her own son's kingdom. And therefore, this man is actually the treasury secretary, not of a single woman or of a single queen, but of the entire nation, the entire kingdom of Ethiopia. He's a very influential figure. So he's an Ethiopian. He's influential. He's also wealthy. How do we know that he's wealthy? Well, he's able to travel to Jerusalem. This was a long journey. And he was able to do so not on foot, not by camel or donkey, but in a chariot. And while in Jerusalem, he was able, had the ability to purchase a costly souvenir. He was able to purchase a handwritten book or a scroll, a copy of Isaiah. So he's an Ethiopian, he's influential, he's wealthy, he's also highly educated. And we see that he's also, even though he's highly educated, open-minded, which I think is interesting. See, not only is he literate because he's reading from this book, but he's also willing to learn from Philip. And from his perspective, this man riding along in this chariot, this guy comes jumping up alongside of him. This guy is nothing more than a religious refugee who's bothering him, traveling on foot in the middle of the desert, but he's willing to listen. He's willing to learn. However, not everything is wonderful for this man, this influential, wealthy, educated 
African man. So the fifth thing that we learn about him is that he is a eunuch, which means that he was a man who had been castrated, probably before puberty. See, in the ancient world, eunuchs were often employed as royal servants because they were considered less dangerous attendants to serve the queen, less dangerous to supervise also the king's harem, all the king's wives. And additionally, without offspring, a eunuch wouldn't be angling to advance their own family's political fortunes because they have no family. And also, without those family ties, eunuchs were expendable. They were easier to replace or easier to execute without any repercussions since there was no one in their family to come after you. So many eunuchs enjoyed political influence at this time. Proximity to a ruler, physical proximity was really important. And they were useful and they were reliable, but they were not always respected. They were considered by many to be less than because they lacked what they needed to be, quote, a real man. And so, as a God-fearer, as a non-Israelite who worships Yahweh, he would have experienced an even deeper level of exclusion than other Gentile pilgrims. And even though he had traveled at least 700 miles to Jerusalem, if he came from Ethiopia, but again, he could have come from even farther, even though he had traveled that far, he would have been stopped in the temple at the outer courts and told, thus far you can come, but no further. And as a non-Jew, he could have never come closer than the court of the Gentiles. And as a eunuch, he would never been allowed to become a convert to Judaism if he had wanted to be. So this man, he is unable to participate in temple worship. He's excluded from the membership of God's people Yet he nevertheless pursues God through the study of his word. And when Philip catches up to him, the Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. That's the passage that's quoted, that little chunk in your scripture reading. As you know, or maybe you could guess, Isaiah is a long book. And if he started at the beginning, he's been reading for quite a while to get all the way to chapter 53. And the question that the man asks is fascinating. Right before the quoted passage, Isaiah describes the rejection and suffering of a man of sorrows. But God will use this man's affliction to make him a substitute who brings peace, brings an end to the conflict between humanity and God. But the question the Ethiopian asks is not how. He asks a question that's actually more important. Verse 34. About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? He asks, who? Who? So Philip points the Ethiopian to Jesus. And then, after that, the eunuch, they come to a body of water that they're passing by, and the eunuch asks an even bigger question. A question to you, to me, may not seem like a big deal, but was critical to him verse 36, what prevents me from being baptized? How often do you think this man, this eunuch, had asked a question like this in his life? What prevents me from having a wife and a family? I'm a eunuch. What prevents me from being accepted by my peers? I'm a eunuch. What prevents me from entering the temple? I'm a eunuch. 
up to this point, there has always been a bar that he can't clear, whether socially, or culturally, or relationally, or spiritually. There's always been a bar that he couldn't clear. And why was that? Why was that? Was, was God just too picky in the Old Testament? Was the culture just too mean? We know that the Old Testament law on this side of Christ, it was given to us as a teaching aid. That these physical defects point to spiritual defects. Eunuchs are physically unable to reproduce. But spiritually, we are all eunuchs. We are all unable to bring forth spiritual life. We're all spiritually impotent. None of us can clear the bar. None of us can overcome the hurdles that we need to overcome, which is why all of us also need to answer the question, who? All of us need to answer that question. Who can do for me before God what I cannot? Who can fix what's broken in us and in our world? Who can cleanse what we've stained and soiled? Who can do in me what I cannot? Who can work through me for the good of others in a way that I cannot do on my own? And here, finally, as we get to the end of the sermon, is the good news of Jesus. We can't clear the bar, but Jesus can, and he did for us. There's no requirement that he fails. There's nothing that prevents him from being fully welcomed and accepted by God. And his righteousness, his perfect record, has been imputed. It's been credited. It's been marked, given to our account. And so that every requirement has been satisfied by Jesus. Every shortcoming has been absorbed by Jesus. And so what then prevents you from being baptized? What prevents you from being identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection? What prevents you from enjoying adoption into the very family of God? The answer, nothing. Nothing prevents you. Are you tired of being told you're not good enough? Are you tired of being told you don't belong? Are you tired of hearing nothing but condemnation from that critical voice that's in your own head? Friends, hear the good news that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and resurrected for you so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could be made new by his grace. That's the message of joy. That's the message that we get to proclaim. You need it. I need it. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family need it. And that's why we, as a church, as a communion of churches, it's why we seek to speak as the very presence of Jesus here in South Jersey, the Philadelphia Reasoned, and beyond. The best way to fight bad speech is more speech. It's better speech. It's speech about Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey. Could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.